opportunity for us to press our mind into the Word of God. And inside of the bulletin, you're going to find a sheet, an insert. And on one side of it, it's going to have the sermon outline. On the other side of it, it's going to have the MPG. MPG stands for Memorize and Pray and Glorify. And it's uh, taking the message that uh, we're going to have this morning on the Lord's Prayer and just having a couple of ways to interact with it, interface with it during the coming week and, and to make it really a practical way of the way that we live our life as disciples of Jesus in this community. And what I would like to do this morning is uh, to begin with two words. They're up here on the television. The two words are, say them with me, deliberate and intentional. Let's say them again, deliberate and intentional. Now, we know what these words mean. When we do something deliberately, we're doing it as if we don't have another option. When we do something deliberately, it's as if um, there is no other choice than to do this specific thing intentionally when we do something intentionally we're actually leaning into uh, a very specified kind of a future we're, we're we're leaning into a desired outcome now these two words deliberate and intentional are at the heart of the spiritual disciplines they're at the heart of what it means to discipline ourselves with those spiritual habits that help us to draw near to God. We are deliberately and intentionally seeking an outcome with these spiritual disciplines. And that, that outcome may be defined this way. The spiritual disciplines develop the preference for life with God. Whenever we go day by day into the world, going about our business, going about the job, uh, interacting with people, meeting temptations, sometimes a lot of temptations during the day, some setbacks and frustrations, what the spiritual disciplines, those habits of, 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 uh, of prayer and of fasting and of meditation, reading God's Word, what they are doing as we do them deliberately and we do them intentionally is that it is developing in us day by day by day, the preference for life with God, an appetite for the presence of God. Now prayer, prayer is at the heart of these disciplines that help us to notice God. It's not just talking to God, but in our life, our prayer life with God, it's about noticing God and seeing God. It's about anticipating God over and over again. And as we pray to God and we sit in God's presence, it's about desiring God above all things. Now, over the last couple of Sundays, we've been thinking specifically about the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things that we've been saying is that, you know, of all of the things that the disciples saw Jesus do, from, from miracles to teaching to the way that He... Um, that conducted himself in those tense moments when the Pharisees or the Sadducees, Herodians or whoever it might be, were, were after him, the one thing they asked him to teach them was how to pray. They asked, you know, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the rest of the fellas thought it was important for Jesus to teach him how to pray. And if that was true for them, how much more for us today? And so the big idea behind this sermon series on the Lord's Prayer has been this, that living like Jesus requires praying like Jesus. As a disciple of Jesus, you are called to follow Him. You are apprenticing your life, learning how to live the Jesus way in the world as it is. And one of the connections, the way that they connected the dots and, and made connections when they saw 
the greatness of Jesus' faithfulness and His gentleness, how the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit just exuded out of His life, they connected that with His prayer life. And in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, they say, teach us to pray. Because living like Jesus requires praying like Jesus. And as we have seen his instruction on prayer over the last couple of weeks, Jesus teaches them that their prayer life, just like all of life, not just the prayer life, but all of life, revolves around the reality of God. And in our first three messages, we've seen the reality of God look like this. He is our Father. We may think of him as, as God and the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that's absolutely true. True. We may think of him as king. We may think of him as sovereign. There's all these different ways that the Bible reveals God. But when Jesus is teaching us how to pray and how we go toward God in prayer, he is telling us that we are approaching a father. Abba, that term of endearment, is how he addressed God the Father. And not only are we as children approaching a father, but then he teaches us, you know, hallowed be thy name, that God is made the ultimate concern. He is hallowed in our hearts. That God is a father, but he's of ultimate concern to us. He is the crucial concern of our life. When we are praying to God the Father, we are praying in our heart and minds and soul to the supreme value of the universe. And then he says, thy kingdom come, say it with me, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not only is he to be the crucial concern in our own individual hearts, we hallow his name, but we are also hallowing his will. We want to see when God has his preference on earth as it is in heaven, that this is what it's going to look like in our life, in the life of all other human beings and all other creatures and in the creation that God put together with a word from his mouth, that it will be hallowed in creation. Now, this is going to bring us to the second big idea of this series. The first one is living like Jesus requires us to pray like Jesus. The second big idea is this. The reality of God that we just looked at, the reality of God precedes and shapes our requests of God. The reality of God precedes and shapes our requests of God. And this brings us to that part of the prayer that most people are interested in. It's in the asking. It's asking God for something. Most people go to God in prayer and they have a need. And they want God to fill it. Or they have a problem and they want God to solve it. Or they have a situation and they want God to change it. The big question when it comes to prayer in everybody, whether you're a disciple of Jesus or not, is does God answer prayer? I mean, think about your own prayer life and your life as a disciple of Jesus and the things that you have faced in this life. Have you ever, and I think the answer is a unanimous yes, have you ever asked yourself the question, does God answer prayer? This kind of prayer, this component of prayer, is what we call petitionary prayer. It's making petition. It's, it's requesting something. It's asking something from God. And asking God for the things we need is a biblical teaching. So the answer to the question, does God answer prayers, the answer is yes. 
And it's not only Jesus that teaches us to make these requests in our prayers and petitions to God in prayer, but the Apostle Paul, for instance, does. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything. That's a big ask, right? In a world like this, with all of the things that we're facing, and you know, it's not just the stuff that's happening in the world, but it's happening in the world that's inside of us, to say, don't be anxious about anything. How do you do that? Well, regardless of whatever situation you might find yourself in, regardless of what you might be facing in the day, in every situation, whatever it might be, by prayer and asking God, going to God with petitions and requests, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Jesus himself made requests in prayer to God. We don't know who this writer is, um, uh, you know, it's sort of a unanimous uh, or an anonymous book towards the latter part of the Christian scriptures. But in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and what? He offered up prayers and petitions. When Jesus says, give us this day our daily prayer, our, our daily bread, it, in verse 11, it is a petition. But it is oh so much more. And as we consider verse 11 of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, we're gonna, I want us to see three things. The first is, I want us to see an enemy. And I want us to see an exercise. And then I want to end pu- kind of pulling it together with eyes and ears. So an enemy, an exercise, eyes and ears. Let's begin with enemy. What did the people hear and think when they heard the words, daily bread, what did they hear? They thought immediately of manna, that bread in the desert. And there's a backstory uh, to this. The backstory to the manna is Israel's deliverance from four centuries of slavery in Egypt. You know the stories found in Exodus. God brings back Moses to Egypt, and through ten plagues, he liberates the enslaved Hebrews. They are headed to the promised land, but they are not going to take the most direct route. They're actually going to travel the perimeter of the Sinai Peninsula, and they, they, they go a long, long way through the wilderness and the desert. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 16, they have been in the desert for a while. Their supplies, their provisions are beginning to wane. And this is where we find the story of daily bread or daily manna. In Exodus chapter 16, we read these words. Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Shin. When the Bible uses the word wilderness, they're talking about a really desolate place like a desert which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel did what? They grumbled. They grumbled. They're complaining. When when the Bible uses the word murmuring or grumbling, they're talking about people that are beginning to complain against God or against their leaders. And in this particular case, Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would we had just been able to die by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt? What? Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of of meat 
and we ate bread to the full. For you, and they mean God, but they're looking at Moses and Aaron, for you have brought us out into this wilderness or this desert to do what? You brought us out here to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. One word, delusion. There is a lot of delusion here. Why would God bring them out into the desert to kill them if God has liberated them from their slavery? After four centuries, gone to all the trouble through ten plagues to liberate them from their, from their slavery and their, 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 their rough life in Egypt. And not only that with the ten plagues. Remember what happened at the Red Sea? Here's Pharaoh's army coming down on them. They're trapped. They think they're going to perish. And what happened? God destroys the army of Pharaoh. And all along the way, up to the very point that we get to in Exodus chapter 16, God has protected them against their enemies. And, you know, this is a period of time where they don't have Waze or they have Google Maps or anything like that. And God is leading them through a land that they've never been through before. They don't know how to go through the desert. And so through a cloud and a pillar of fire at night, God is leading them through the land, through the wilderness, through the unknown territories, places that they have never been before, and their memories by this time. What a short period of time, eh? Their memories have become distorted. Isn't it amazing how distorted our memories are? of God's intersections into our life and God's interactions in our life become. How, how quickly we forget, how quickly it becomes distorted when we stop counting our blessings. They're saying we had it better in slavery. Life was better under the whip. Life Life was a peach when we had that forced labor. And, you know, it was a part of their history that, and this is why, you know, this is where the Moses story kind of begins in Exodus. Life was better when the Egyptians tried to kill all the male babies. Delusion. Ingratitude is the result of losing sight of blessings, but it's also something else. Ingratitude for blessings insults the blesser. Ingratitude for blessings insults the blesser. And you know what happens when we become full of ingratitude, when there's not a gracious heart, a heart of thankfulness, when it comes to God and all of His blessings? We're in danger. And Israel at this moment is in super, super danger. The reality of their life in Egypt is found about 14 chapters earlier in Exodus chapter 2 where we read these words, And the son of Israel sighed. When the Bible uses the word sighed, it's, it's, it's about running out of air because of, of pressure and because of sadness and because of depression and the way you just everything is repressed down. And the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. It's a sigh of despair. Are we ever going to get out of this? Am I ever going to know a life where it doesn't feel like I'm being tied down to something that is killing me? And they cried out. 
They literally are crying out to God and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their what? Their groaning. Groaning happens when you have the weight, this incredible, hard-to-bear, hard-to-lift-up weight. You're groaning under the weight of it. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In reality, the Hebrews were in a wretched reality that they hated in Egypt. They were in agony. They were in torment. They were in affliction. They were in distress. And now in the desert, facing life in the sparse wilderness, having forgotten and stopped counting the blessings, they are misremembering their recent past with God. God's liberation, God's provision, and most of all, God's presence. And they literally are saying in the presence of God, you know what? I'd go back. I would, I would, I would, I would go back to life in Egypt. In profound delusion, they're saying, you know, that wasn't so bad. You know, when you think about it, that was, that was sort of my preferred life. Which brings us to a principle of our spiritual life. And that that principle is this. Enemies attack when needs arise. Enemies attack when needs arise. Now, believe it or not, when you find yourself up on the mountaintop, you're in danger because at that place, all your, your eyes are on you. Everything's great. Everything is hunky-dory. It's all going great. You're in danger to take your eyes off of God on, in the high place as well as in the deep place. But it's in the deep place when the needs arise and we're feeling uncomfortable, and things are not going the way that we think they ought to go, or we think that we're lacking something, or that life just in general is not that great. When needs arise, enemies attack. And I'm here to tell you, church, the universe is full of enemies. There are a lot of enemies. The universe is full of enemies. And this particular enemy, this particular enemy that Israel is facing is found in them. This enemy is found in us. You know what it is? The human heart. Our heart can be so misleading when we enter into tough times. Our human heart can become anxious and it become panicky and, and fearful and nervous and jittery. And you know where it goes from there. You know, the prophet Jeremiah, and just looking at what's happening in, among God's people when the pressure is on, is just going, do you, do you no longer see God? Do you no longer see God? And he says in chapter 17 and verse 9, that the heart is deceitful, which means that your heart can sometimes lie to you. I, you may remember uh, a year or so ago, I did a sermon series on the questions you ask yourself. And one of the questions you ask yourself to try to gain wise answers, am I being honest? Am I really being honest about this situation? And the answer to that is, sometimes, you know who I'm a sucker for? I'm a sucker for me. I can talk myself into anything. 
That's how the heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things. Your best friend, your spouse, your preacher can tell you that's not a great idea, but the heart is so deceitful and we're such a sucker for our own heart that we can be lied to and we're going to believe it. That's delusion. The heart is deceitful above all things and, unfortunately, beyond cure. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? Well, I'll tell you who can understand it. God. God understands. God not only understands that our hearts can deceive us, but He anticipates the human heart. The reason that God has taken the people the long way through the desert to the promised land was to form a heart of faith and a heart of trust in Him. I mean, had they gone straight from Egypt to the, to the entrance of the promised land, you're talking about just days, just walking days, 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 and then we're there. But God also knows that you can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. And so he takes them on the long way, and he's doing this with intent. And he's doing it deliberately in order to form a heart of faith and a trust in him. That even when life gets difficult and life gets harsh, like it is in Exodus chapter 16, that they will learn to love and they will learn to trust Him, and that the battlefield, is, uh, the wilderness, is that battlefield for the human heart and for trust and faith. Four decades later, and you know the story, the, you know, they get to Kadesh Barnea, they're in, in, in numbers, and they turn back, and they just, you know, they just, the heart is so deceitful. And they decide, you know what, we, we can't do this. I know God has gotten us through this, sustained us, all this, but, you know, delusional thinking, deceitful heart. They say no, and they're in the desert for 40 years. And four decades later, as the Hebrews are getting ready for the second time to enter the promised land, Moses gives them the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy is a blessing to us, and it was a blessing to them. It was basically about three sermons in which Moses is helping the people to, rem- to remember what life with God is like. And he is reminding them of the process and the lessons of trusting God. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 1, he says in verse 30, The Lord your God who is going before you is going to fight for you as he did in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. It was there in Egypt in the wilderness, significant. You saw it with your own eyes when life was tough. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a as a what god was even a father in the old testament go figure that god carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place and then seven chapters later in chapter eight in verse two he says remember count your blessings Remember how the Lord your God led all the way in the wilderness. Remember how he blessed you all along the way these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. In order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. That is, trust him and have faith in him.
God knows the human heart. And this leads us to the second point. Because we deal with an enemy, and the enemy most pertinent to us and closest to us in proximity is our own heart, there needs to be an exercise. Something that we do deliberately. Something that we do intentionally that draws us near to God. And this is the daily in the phrase that Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus teaches us to pray this daily. Why? Well, when we go back to Exodus chapter 16, God's response to the ingratitude of the Hebrew people was to give them something to do every day. It was a daily exercise of faith. And in Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, God is saying, you need food? I will rain down bread from heaven for you. God's going to rain food in the desert. The people are to go out each day, not every other day, not once a month, but they go out each day and they gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. That is, will they follow me? Will they trust me? On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much, because the Sabbath is going to be a day of rest. And on the sixth day, I'm going to gather for Friday and for Saturday as they gather on the other days. What does it mean? What does it mean to have bread every day in a place where bread is impossible? What does it mean, church, to have bread every day in a place where bread is impossible? You have bread every day, but there's not a bakery nearby. You have bread every day, but there's not a 7-Eleven or a Whataburger or anything. There's not an H-E-B. There, you're out in the middle of nowhere. There are not grain fields out here, but in this place where bread is impossible, you have bread. What does it mean? Why, why the exercise? Why do it every day? What is the meaning of having bread where bread is impossible? The answer is that somebody great and somebody trustworthy and somebody fatherly is taking care of us. Every day. Without fail. God, in His great wisdom, knows that the human heart is a mess and it needs a daily exercise to develop trust in the face of daily temptations. Why didn't God use the Costco approach? I mean, you just go to Costco, you, you know, show them the card, you get a couple of those big carts, you load it up, you buy food for a month, and then you don't think about Costco until you got to go back in there, Right? Why did God not use the Costco approach, gathering food for a month? Because trust does not develop overnight. Trust does not develop overnight, but living with someone day by day by day by day. Now, you can give them the benefit of the doubt 
when Ellen and I got married. I mean, if you would have asked her, you know, do you trust Mark? She would have said yes. But that was nothing more than a 20-year-old giving the benefit of the doubt to a 21-year-old. Whether that was wise or not, who can say? But you know what? Day by day by day by day by day, living with me as a spouse, she has learned to trust me. And it goes the other way. When we, when we got married, would you, you know, Mark, would you trust her? with? It? Yeah, absolutely. Benefit of the doubt. I mean, I was making a decision based on what I knew at the time. But day by day by day by day, next month, 40 years together. And guess what? I trust no one on this planet like I trust Ellen. She's the most honest person I know. And I say that because she has done it day by day by day. The people on a daily basis were developing trust in God each morning that they went out and they gathered enough food for the day. It was an exercise that involved both God and the people working together. They were learning daily to get the reality of God into their heart. That He is their Father, hallowed be His name, His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, even in their heart. Day by day by day, the exercise went something like this. It started with bread. Guess what? God gives it. But it wasn't just going to appear on the plate. They had to go out and gather it. But there were rules of stipulation. You couldn't gather more than just one day because it would turn rotten the next morning. But you had to trust that God, who was delivering it, was also going to be faithful to His Word. Not just a powerful Word, but a faithful Word. That the powerful Word would provide the food faithfully every day. And day after day after day after day, the truth of God's faithfulness and love and His fatherliness began to sink in to the point that it developed trust. Till it developed trust. And 40 years later, as they're going into the promised land, Moses is going to remind them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known. You couldn't bake it. You couldn't invent it. It was to teach you, it was to teach you that man does not live on bread alone. But he lives on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The blessing reveals the character of of the blesser. The blessings reveal the character of the blesser. What does getting daily bread in the desert really mean? In the awareness of our insufficiency, in our weaknesses, our shortcomings, and our very human limitations, that we are moving toward our Father, who carries us each and every day. Rick Warren says it this way, you don't know God is all you need until God is all you have. Amen? You don't know God is all you need until God is all you have. So eyes and ears. One of the great quests of the Bible is this. 
Eyes to see, ears to hear. Eyes to see, ears to hear. It is the quest for spiritual perception. It is the quest for spiritual discernment, to be able to see and to hear the truth of God as it's being revealed and for it to be absorbed. Now, let's get back to give us this day our daily bread. When you go to prayer with requests, do you see, do you speak to our Father who art in heaven or our heavenly Santa Claus who exists to give me presents? After Jesus' baptism, and God has acknowledged His Sonship. He says, this is my Son. You know, He's baptized, He comes up out of the water, Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, and this voice from heaven says, this is my Son, whom I love. In Him I am well pleased. And immediately after God the Father says that, God the Spirit leads God the Son into the desert. And you know what happens at the, end of, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4? He's there in the desert for how long? Not 40 years, but 40 days. 40 days without bread. 40 days fasting. And he's needing some food. He's getting hungry. And enemies appear when needs arise. And Satan comes and says, God is trying to kill you in this desert. God is trying to kill you in this desert. God can't be trusted. You need to take matters into your own hands. You need to prefer a different kind of a life, a different kind of a reality. You need to prefer, you need to take hold of a reality that is not with the God who is trying to kill you, having led you into this desert. And guess what Jesus quotes to Satan? Man, say it with me, does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, God brought me into this place and God's going to lead me out. Later in the New Testament, in the Christian scriptures, there's again this anonymous writer. I read the first part of this verse, Hebrews chapter 5, at the beginning of the sermon. But the rest of the verse goes like this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. You know, most people look at that verse and they go, he was heard. What? Are you nuts? He went on the cross. He, he died. What do you mean he was heard? The cup did not pass from his lips. He died on the cross. The answer was no. Now, that's the way you think that he was turned down only if you think of the Santa Claus model for asking God. But Jesus prays to Abba. He prays to the Father who turned his prayer and petition and loud cries and tears into a resurrection. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, they're saying, Father, 
I have needs that I trust you to take care of. You're saying, I'm, I, I'm asking you, God, Father, to take care because I believe your answer will always be better. It will, it, I, I trust you to give the best answer because you're my Father. And because you are the ultimate concern for my life. And I want your will to be done on earth and in my life as it's done in heaven. So this day, give me my daily bread, knowing that it's not just bread I need, but I live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Let's pray. Father, needs come and needs go. But you, you are always present. Your integrity and steadfast love answers all our questions. Your wisdom is the answer we trust to all our requests, even when it goes contrary to our asking and the intent of our heart. We believe your mercy is new every morning. We believe every day is an experience of the greatness of your steadfastness. Give us today our daily bread. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and everyone said. Let's stand and sing.